For me, dignity is best defined in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's the ability to have strength, confidence, but the most important part of the phrase is in the face of the world. Because dignity is a two-way street. I can't give you dignity, but I can I can help you achieve dignity. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. So what do you do when you have an entrepreneur's brain, a charitable heart, singer's soul, and a public speaker's confidence? We'll change the world, of course. I can't wait for you to meet Mega Desai. She's the possessor of all of these gifts and the one who leverages them to help empower women and children all over the world. Mega is president of the Desai Foundation, a public foundation that aims to elevate the health and livelihood of women and children through community programs in the U.S. and India. The programs they fund and facilitate range from menstrual health and hygiene to hard skills and computer science, all in the name of what Mega calls cultivating dignity. Mega began her career in marketing and advertising, achieving incredible success in her field, which led her ultimately to founding her own marketing agency. Her true passion to help others found a way of creeping into most of her projects as she helped clients develop programs with purpose and focus on more holistic outcomes. Eventually, the growth of the foundation and the pull of helping communities here and abroad brought Mega to a crossroads. With a new board of directors in place and an opportunity to develop more impactful programs through the auspices of the foundation, she put her private career on hold and agreed to run the foundation for a year. That was a little over four years ago. All of Mega's energy, intellect, passion, and enthusiasm is now poured into her work with the foundation. And the skills she developed in private industry enabled her to see process and outcomes a little differently than some. If 2020 is any gauge of the inherent challenge of delivering programs and cultivating dignity, oftentimes in hard to reach rural communities, she'll need to marshal all of these gifts to persevere. As you'll hear in this episode, my money is on mega in a mega way. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast. I'm Jed Morey, CEO of Morey Creative Studios, executive producer of Newsbeat and host of Grow for Good. So this week, we continue my rather painful journey of inadequacy by interviewing Mega Desai, president of the Desai Foundation, who is also an accomplished singer, ran a marketing agency of her own, a public speaker, a well-known advocate in the women's empowerment movement, and so much more as you'll discover today, which is why I say it's my journey through inadequacy uh, hosting this show. You came to us through Susan McPherson, who is completely badass in her own respect and incredibly, incredibly accomplished and intelligent. So we're just continuing that track, and I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Oh, it's my honor, Jed, and I'm so excited to be here. I've been listening to your podcast, and I'm really grateful that Susan uh, brought us together. Excellent. So let's get the most uncomfortable thing out of the way first, mm -hmm. okay? There's one thing in your bio that I left out of the introduction to the show on purpose, but we have to address it if we're going to move forward productively here. You're in it's obviously your love of the New England Patriots. You don't seem like the kind of person that would root for known cheaters. So I want to understand <laughs> how you reconcile this aspect of, of, of your life with all the good you do for the world. How could you? Well, for starters, my friend, um, I am from Massachusetts. Uh, <laughs> so it's just in my blood. You know, for me, 
my love of football is actually about my family. My father, who used to work a ton and travel a ton for work, you know, the only time we had were Sundays. And we have been going to football games since I was nine years old. And uh, it has just been this connection that we have to Vegas best friends. Um, and it was kind of funny as, as a little girl, like explaining football to my father and uh, and us learning the game together. And since then, it's been 30 plus years of, of going to Super Bowls and going to football games and building a family and a culture of tailgating and, you know, standing out in the cold. I really do love the game. Um, I love the strategy involved. I love how you can have great weapons, but then bad coaching and how it can all fall apart. And I feel like I learn so much about life through these random analogies when I watch football. And so the reason I love the Patriots is because they cycle through so many different players, right? It's not like they have this long history, but they have like, you know, one or two players that stay for long history, but it's this very interesting chess game of coaching. Uh, and I love watching that. And I'm, and I'm assuming because you call those cheaters, you're a Jets fan. I'm just, you know, throwing that out there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a long, long suffering Jets fan. Um, and what makes matters even worse is I married a woman who grew up on Cape Cod and her father is a season ticket holder since the year they became a franchise. Wow. Seven years ago yesterday. They are very, so he is in, he would kill me if he, if I disclose this, uh, but he is in his mid nineties and he has always had the tickets and it is just part of the family. It's part of the culture. Uh, we actually have a we have a sports prenuptial. So I gave up my Jets in order to raise the kids as Mets fans. So that was like the most important hurdle that we had to overcome. That is amazing. I love it. And the other, the other thing I love about sports, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Gotham Chopra's podcast or watched any of his films around sports, but he has this company called Religion of Sport. And it's so true because it's this very kind of funny fandom. Um, and it's an almost this religious experience that brings us together. And even when I meet a Jets fan who's supposedly the enemy, I still feel this kinship, even though I don't know them, because we're still part of the same kind of tribe, right? Like we're, we're still rooting, even though we're against each other, we're still, we still care about the same kind of thing. And um, I'm very excited for football to start. See, look what you did there. Look what you did there. You brought us together. You gave (laughs) us some common ground. I appreciate you for that. You could have thrown your winning ways and your record in my face, but no, you, you started with love. And so I appreciate (laughs) you for that. All right. So getting serious because we do have a ton of ground to cover uh, in the work that you've done and the plans on your horizon. So before we get to it, I'd love to understand more of your business backstory, actually, because you've had a very you had a very serious and successful career working in advertising before jumping into entrepreneurship and social change work. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about that time in your life and maybe even lean into how it influenced your charitable work and why you ultimately left the, the comfort of a of a job, a career? Yeah. I was fascinated with communications in high school. And I was fascinated with communications in high school because I had the very privilege of interning for a U.S. senator. It was so interesting to me the way that different messaging and the way that like just sitting in rooms, listening to teams craft messaging around different policy ideas was just fascinating to me. And so I ended up focusing, I mean, I studied economics and theology in college because I thought to me, theology was like this idea of, well, if I can sell 
this thing that nobody you can't nobody can prove to anybody. I can certainly sell them orange juice. You know, that was kind of my 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 naive logic as a, as a young girl. And then I started off having internships in different communications fields, whether it was PR, whether it was um, design, branding. I don't have a skill set for design, unfortunately, despite that really wanting to be my passion. And so I chose advertising because I felt like it brought together all these different aspects that I'd already studied. And so um, I was very lucky to have been, you know, working at some of the most incredible advertising firms, uh, Fallon, BBH, uh, Wyden and Kennedy, Ogilvy Entertainment, uh, and then Anomaly, and working on some of the big classic brands. Uh, my longest tenure was at BBH, where I helped launch the Axe deodorant body brand for Unilever. And, you know, what an experience that was. It was, uh, you know, creating a new category working with a subset of the population I hadn't really thought of, you know, like 14 to 18 year old boys. And so it was and by the way, you know, I'm from Long Island. So you're welcome because I think we had about 90% market share of acts. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And so it was a, a really interesting journey. And I thought what was so special about the time that I was there, you know, my first couple of years on acts, we were still picking up the phone and calling websites advertising was so different back then that you'd literally pick up the phone and call Funny or Die and say, I would like to do an ad on Funny or Die or a collaboration or something. So we were at this very unique time. Uh, We were one of the first brands to do a branded entertainment piece with MySpace, with one of the characters that was on MySpace. So it was a very interesting time to experiment with so many different forms of communication and different audience, different micro audiences, different macro audiences. And I feel very lucky. I'm still very close with so many of the people that I worked with in advertising. But the the parts for me that felt, it's funny, when you get more successful in advertising, I feel like, you know, you're making more money, but suddenly you're working for larger companies, larger brands that that allow you to experiment less. So it was funny as I grew in my career and I would be be in charge of much larger P&Ls and kind of technically sexier brands. I was much more constrained uh, and the work became much more rote. um, And I felt like I wasn't flexing those kind of innovative and creative muscles that I knew I had, especially working on the kind of account and strategy roles that I had been traditionally working on. Yeah, the risk tolerance decreases precipitously the further up the ladder you go. And which is one of the reasons that some of the big brands ultimately wind up waning is because they just they lose a little bit of that creative spirit and energy. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, uh, that was frustrating to me as I moved on to like large beverage companies that like, it was funny because that was the brand everyone wanted to work on was this very large beverage company, but I never felt like I got anything done there. It was very, you know, I have a a whole tenure there and it's not even on my resume because I, I kind Mm -hmm. of, I'm like, I don't know, I have nothing to really show for (laughs) the time there. And so, uh, that was a little bit interesting experiment. So at first I thought it was the company that I was at. So I started to kind of jump around you know, taking these one-year stints at different companies, trying to find a home. And then I was like, well, if it's not the company, then maybe it's the brands. So then I started trying to lean in on different types of companies and brands. Another very lucky part of my life has been, somehow I've been very attracted to very entrepreneurial friends. So here I am now in like 2009, and all of my friends are starting companies. And so suddenly I have people starting, you know, nightlife companies and social good companies and all sorts of different types of tech companies and entrepreneurial companies. And while I was bouncing from company to company, 
I wasn't putting in like the normal 90 hours that I had been in my traditional advertising job. So I had a lot of time. So, you know, I was doing kind of like 40, 50 hour weeks at my company. Um, so I would spend the rest of the time, you know, helping my friend design a logo or helping my friend identify her audience. And it kind of just became this natural flow into starting my own branding company. And so originally my clients were more on the startup side, but then through some partnerships that I worked on with my friends, Raina Kumra and a bunch of other really amazing people, we started to kind of push and lean in more into the social good. Sometimes I would even take the clients I had and push them into social good. I had a great tenure working with HP and they had very quietly reduce their emissions and their waste by 33%. Mm. And I'm reading through their annual report and there's like this tiny little line item that says, oh, by the way, we did this thing. And I was like, hello, we, we need to do something about this. So I had a great, great company and client that I was working with that allowed us to kind of experiment and say, I know that you asked us to do this one thing, but could we offer you this other thing? And we ended up doing this huge partnership with the Lorax film and HP printing. And it was really, really one of their, their kind of more successful branded entertainment partnerships. And so suddenly I was like, oh, I'm able to flex this muscle again. I'm able to be creative. I'm able to work with companies that, that either get me or I get, which is different, two different things and very important. That's when I kind of left advertising. The other part that I will say out loud is advertising was at this inflection point in the 2010s where it was losing, it, it wasn't sure whether to lean heavier into the kind of internet world, I think, mm -hmm. or to lean heavier and double down on the TV and film side and, and, and branded entertainment side. And that bifurcation became very kind of uninspiring for me. It, it also made me think more critically about the companies that I was representing. So initially, I kind of was able to give a pass to the companies I was working for because I was so interested in the creativity and, and the experimentation. But then when this bifurcation happened, I felt to myself like, well, now it really matters if I'm selling sugar water or if I'm, you know, selling beer or whatever the case may be. And the, the ethics of that kind of came more light. See, that's interesting. It, to be clear, you ran after you left the big shops, you, know, you ran your own advertising company for, let's say, four or five years, five years, for yeah. five years. One of the things I noticed about the uh, the profile of your clients was that most of them seem to have some sort of impact twist to them. And that was where I would wanted to lead the discussion is, did you find yourself doing better work when there was mission, when there was impact associated with it? Or were you able to set those things apart and still be as creative if there was no mission implication? Well, I can tell you I liked my clients better, um, which, which when you have that rapport, you can dig in and experiment, right? There's a trust that's built there when you get along with your clients and deeply understand what each other are trying to achieve. So what I would end up doing is doing the task that I was assigned, but then really digging deeper and experimenting, much like I did with my client with HP, and say... You know, there's this tiny little Swedish company called Spotify. Do you think that we could maybe reach out to them and, and see if they'd be willing to do a branded entertainment channel? And they were like, well, how are you going to do that? I was like, I don't know, but let's figure it out. <laughs> right. And so that, that was, you know, what was fun. And, you know, lo and behold, one.org 
and Spotify got together and and put together one of their very first um, you know kind of branded channels. And so it was a uh, fun to be able to experiment with different formats and and connections and bringing different companies together. I think that for me was so much fun when I was working with my own company and more brand that were focused on impact, I got to just experiment and try things. I mean, we brought a sandwich company to one.org and they were like, what on earth are you thinking? And we were able to kind of experiment and it was successful, not as successful as we had hoped, but it literally got them really thinking like, oh, maybe the American audience does care about what we're doing with potato farming and sweet potato farming in Africa. So it was a very interesting way to experiment. And I loved that. So before we leave the more business side of your career, just one quick question on the company's name was MSD. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Can you explain Dharma and Mm -hmm. how you incorporated that into your brand strategy initiatives for your clients? Yeah. So the three words that have always ruled my life have been Dharma, dignity, and dreams. Marketing strategy Dharma was born out of this idea of self-understanding. So dharma is a, a Hindu philosophy that basically says throughout your different phases in life, you have a different duty and obligation. So when you are a student, your obligation is to study hard. When you are a parent, your obligation is to care deeply for your children. When you are a partner, you know, your duty is to honor and help that partner thrive. And then your duty to God and your duty to your society are ever present and everlasting. Dharma is really about as you build, how do you create equity around you? How do you make sure that you're taking care of the community around you? What is your obligation? That idea has always kind of led me. You know, my grandmother, if I would throw a tantrum when I was younger or, you know, be out of line, my parents would would discipline me in one way. And my grandmother would always just say to me, what is your dharma right now? And it was just this way of like helping you reframe your rudder, helping you find your north. Mm. That was what I was trying to bring to these companies was build, do great things, innovate, create what you want to create, but just make sure you don't lose sight of your rudder as you're building. And that was kind of what I was trying to bring to these or- these companies. See, even in the way you respond to that is so much more poignant and and beautiful than the lunkish way a Long Island Jets fan would say, tell me about this dom. <laughs> I love the way you say it. A lot more. So thank you for clarifying that. So let's switch gears to the foundation. When and how did the foundation begin? We started as a small family foundation. Uh, It was a little over 20 years ago. Uh, My father's in the tech world. Uh, My mother and father decided to start this organization actually before we sold the company. It really was a very, it was built as a small family foundation, you know, writing small checks to organizations that we thought were doing good things. The areas that we had focused on were health, education, and South Asian culture, actually. It was about, you know, continuing to keep the the culture alive. My sister is a beautiful dancer. Uh, my mother is an amazing singer and dancer and choreographer, and I sing. So it was this idea of keeping the kind of Indian culture, because I really learned about my faith through dance uh, and, and through singing. So it was a way of, of, of trying to keep that alive for the next generation. That's how it started. Um, and I didn't really think much of it. My mom and dad did this kind of on their own for a decade or a little bit more than a decade. I was in college. I, you know, I didn't really think a whole lot about it. And I was building my career in advertising. And then about 
12 years ago, uh, my father was making some decisions about, you know, how the money should be spent and had reached out and said, Hey, can you, you're really good. You're better at research than I am. Can you just dig into these companies? And I started, started out by doing little tasks, researching different companies or understanding where this path was headed. You know, we actually invested in one of the first STEM programs that we'd ever heard of, you know, some, some 12 years ago. Um, and we weren't sure if it was a good investment because we didn't know if people cared about this yet. You know, kind of funny to think about that now. But we were doing lots of these different programs. Um, and because I'm annoying, I just got really involved. And I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. And that doesn't make sense. And what if we reorganize this this way? And what if we did this? And what if we told this company and this company that we're investing in to work together to build this thing? Because it seems the same. And that's what we did. And we kind of guided these organizations. We ended up building our own programming. And suddenly we found ourselves at a crossroads where we were running about, we had about 12 different individual programs. And we're a tech entrepreneur and a marketing entrepreneur running this little organization. We know what we don't know, right? We were kind of like, I don't know if this is the best thing for us to just kind of keep going down the path. Let's bring in some, some smarter people. So we figured out that the only way to do that was to be, expand to a, uh, a public nonprofit. Now, for anyone that is thinking about doing this, please don't. Uh, just shut down your private foundation and start a new one. <laughs> it is it is a paperwork-ridden, torturous process to convert a private foundation to a public one. So just take the advice of someone who's already made the mistake. Then here we are, uh, you know, six years later, or this was six years ago, we converted to a public foundation. So now it's time to find the leadership. So we interviewed about 20 different highly qualified nonprofit practitioners that we thought could step in and guide our work. And this has changed quite a bit now, but six years ago, everyone that we had interviewed was so entrenched. They all had 10, 20 years of nonprofit experience, but they just were really entrenched in kind of the traditional, this is the way that nonprofit things work. And unfortunately, because we were, you know, more kind of agile entrepreneurial thinkers, we were like, ah, I'm not so sure that she's going to be able to, to grow this, or I'm not sure he's going to understand how we want to be able to adapt. And so we dismissed a lot of these candidates. Then we started going to the private sector and we interviewed a whole bunch of private sector people thinking, well, you know, that seems to be what we need. But then they didn't have the foundational elements of how nonprofits work. And we just found ourselves at this crossroads where we couldn't really find the right candidate for the job. And so my board of directors, because now we were a public foundation, we had a, a public board of directors. I raised my hand and I said, listen, I'll do this for a year. Um, until we find famous last words, right? Yeah. Like until we find someone that is qualified, that is like, you know, I'll put a pin in my company and I'll do this for a year. And, you know, and here we are four years later and it's been a, a really great ride. I have an, we've grown the team incredibly and the work incredibly, but it's been such a, that, that, that shift, that pivot. It's funny because it, it doesn't feel terribly different. I work way longer hours. I get paid a lot less money, but the sense of satisfaction and fulfillment I have is, is through the roof. And I'm using a lot of the same skills. So there's something I wanted to ask you about your skill set that I found really intriguing in one of the, I think it was actually the Ted talk that you gave. You mm. were talking about a sewing program throughout rural India. 
so the intersection here that I that I want to focus on is something that I've I've begun to pick up in several of our interviews, particularly as it crosses over into nonprofit and talking about measuring outcomes and defining success, because I feel like that's something that has changed dramatically over the last decade in the nonprofit world. So when you talked about that sewing program as an example, can you talk about how you leveraged your, first of all, your background in business to even talk about outcomes, but then the epiphany that you kind of had along the way that, okay, my outcome is going to be a little bit different, so I may need to measure this differently as I go. Can you talk about that process? Absolutely. When you're young, you are taught about these kind of standard measuring sticks that we are kind of programmed to measure against. So success of a business, the measuring stick is revenue, right? You know, there are all these different, it's like revenue, it's, you know, people served, it's uh, wells built. It's these kind of very numbers centric measuring sticks. And I bought into that, especially working in advertising, right? That's, you know, how many eyeballs, how many, you know, you look at the, the research and the research tells you, oh, more people are willing to buy this product, success. And then on the other hand, when you're working in a, another career like advertising, which again, measuring sticks are very convoluted in advertising, we care about all these awards that nobody's ever heard about. And so you wear these badges of honor of like, oh, I have five can lines and I have this and I have that. And, you know, nobody in the outside world even knows what that is. For a long time, I hadn't even put those on my resume because I was like, who knows what these are? <laughs> uh, but, you know, and then in the film industry, there's like two different, you know, measuring sticks. There's gross at the box office, but then there's Oscars. And so sometimes those two things don't correlate. And, you know, what, what does that mean? So I, I just think that there are all these different measuring sticks out in the world. And when I was working for the nonprofits that I've interacted with in the past, and especially at MSD, I realized I was starting to get hip to this idea of different measuring sticks, right? Especially with one.org. One.org taught me a lot of different lessons, how one of the things that they were most investing in was actually just shifting people's perception of Africa, right? For so long, the continent of Africa has been, oh, this poor country with all these people that are, are suffering. And that's not the case, right? The case is that there's innovation there. There's, uh, there's, there's, there's incredible creativity and innovation and art there and beautiful people that are creating amazing things. And what one.org really wanted to focus the perception change. And it was so, such an interesting project to work on because you're thinking to yourself, Oh, how do I then take those? partnerships and just slightly shift. I mean, it was so interesting, you know, Spotify and all these people are like, well, wh what are you trying to accomplish? And we're like, we just want people to hear the music of Africa. Like, that's it. Like, it was that simple. <laughs> and, um, and they were like, so you're not trying to get them to fundraise or nothing? We're like, nope. And I, that was one of the reasons why I loved working on that brand because it really got, I got an opportunity to, to really work with a slightly different measuring stick. So here I am in the villages of India. I'm working with these women and teaching them to sew. Everything that I'd read, all the case studies, all the people I'd spoken to about nonprofit world is once you've taught somebody a skill, well, by gosh, they have to use it and they have to make money. And so I thought to myself, well, that's what I should be doing. So in one village, we took the sewing classes and 80% of the women took the job that was in a local factory. They started making money and ta-da, success. Pats on the back. We're doing great. 20 kilometers 
go, you move 20 kilometers to the left to a slightly more traditional village. We have women take the class and almost nobody took this job. And so here I am thinking, well, was the class no good? Like, mm. I, it was funny. I was analyzing the totally wrong thing. Rather than canceling the program, we went back and we spoke to every woman that took a job and that did not take a job. And we got to understand why they were taking the class in the first place. It turns out that not all of them were taking the class for the job. Some of the people were taking a class to get away from their mother-in-laws for two hours a day. <laughs> Some of these women were taking this class because they wanted to make friends. Some of these women genuinely wanted to become better seamstresses, right? It was something they did at home anyways. And this was a way for them to save money, maybe not make money, but save money. And then some of them wanted to find jobs. I got very frustrated because here I was kind of new to the industry to begin with. And here I was having, you know, institutional donors saying, well, you know, we don't think that enough people are being employed by your program. Therefore, it isn't a success. And I just got really frustrated with people telling me what was successful and what was not successful. Like, come to my village, come, come to one of the 600 villages I serve, speak to the people in those villages, and then you can tell me whether my programs are successful. I, I give this example uh, of Wells. You know, there are a lot of amazing organizations that are bringing water access, but unfortunately, their fundraising, the way that they have designed their fundraising is wholly dependent on the number of wells that they build. So they go out and they build lots of wells and then they don't think about potentially the consequences of those wells, right? Like, have they been built too close together? Have they been built between rival tribes? Mm. Have they been, you know, maybe the, like there's a great story and case study in um, Afghanistan where the women didn't want the well because that, that two hours where they had to go and walk to the local stream to get water was the only two hours those women had alone together you know, without the kind of pressure of their husbands or, or their mother-in-laws. So like, there are lots of other reasons why people take these classes. And so my talk was about this idea of like, as long as you're thinking about cultivating dignity, there's that second D word for me, as long as you're cultivating dignity in the programs that you're building, then you're headed in the right direction. So let's, let's hang on cultivating uh, dignity. And then we'll, after this, we'll stop for a quick break. But the foundation actually has really seems to have really broad energy from economic development, skill empowerment, women's empowerment, all focused around this idea of cultivating dignity. If you had to just kind of put that definition in a box for us so people could wrap their heads around it, how do you define that? When I started doing research for the TED Talk on the word dignity, I was a little surprised to find how many definitions there were of this word. Um, there are books and books and books about dignity and what it means and how it's applied. And what I found to be so interesting is I did a very deep dive in the UN statistics of livelihood statistics and health outcome statistics. And I, you know, pulled out my economics background and looked at the entire regression model and noticed that the concept of dignity or even anything remotely close to dignity, wasn't really a factor in these kind of large in indices that the UN uses. And the only time you see dignity being represented is when it comes to death. So the dignity of death, are people able to die with dignity, which I think is hugely important. But, you know, for a health index or for a livelihood index or for a happiness index, I was surprised to not see this idea of dignity. For me, 
Dignity is best defined in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's the ability to have strength, confidence, but the most important part of the phrase is in the face of the world. Because a dignity is a two-way street. I can't give you dignity, but I can, I can help you achieve dignity. I can't take your dignity, but I can diminish it. Mm. And it's this very subtle exchange that happens, right? Like if you, if you avert your eyes from someone that is um, homeless on the street versus actually looking at that person and acknowledging them, that's an exchange of dignity, right? This concept of dignity is about understanding the needs of the people and helping to provide that need um, in the way that makes sense for them. You know, one of the women in our uh, Asani Sanitary Napkin Distribution Program, I had called her about a year ago because she really wasn't making enough money for uh, her participating in the program. So I thought maybe, I was like, maybe I'd offer her a different program to participate in. And she's like, nah, I love this. She's like, I actually don't need that much money. She said, I just need to be able to to talk to my friends privately. Hmm. And because she is selling a sanitary and menstrual health product, the men kind of give them their space and she gets to have a private chat with her, with her girlfriend. And so there are so many different reasons why people participate in these programs. And we just want to make sure that we're honoring all of them. Brilliant. Uh, we don't, we don't want to make assumptions about why people want to learn how to sew or take a, an entrepreneurial class or whatever. So this concept of dignity for us is, are we cultivating dignity so that they can dream beyond their circumstances, whatever that means for them? I love it. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Mega about balancing a personal life and brand, a business foundation, and maintaining focus on women's empowerment initiatives in an increasingly hostile world. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. Welcome back to Grow for Good, where I'm joined today by powerhouse Mega Desai, president of the Desai Foundation. She's a public figure in the women's empowerment movement in India and here in the United States, which is something that I want to talk about as well. Mega, one of the areas of work that you're most known for is education and outreach in the U.S. and India surrounding menstrual hygiene. Can you talk about the importance of educating women about their periods, the health dangers that some women face from a lack of education and sanitary napkins? And the overall sense of, I guess, I don't know if it's empowerment or if it's relief. How would you describe it when you bring this gift of education to a part of the world that has yet to receive it? Yeah, thank you for that question. I'm strangely passionate about this area of our work. And it's because I spent so many years on the ground listening to the women not talk about their periods necessarily, but about their struggles to advance in so many other areas of their lives. The fact that so many schools, both in the U.S. and in India, don't have proper bathroom facilities, don't have proper menstrual health facilities or education, means that lots of girls, when they hit 11, 12, 13 years old, drop out of school. Hmm. 
When it comes to work, again, not having adequate bathroom facilities in factories and so many of these other jobs means that women can't often go to work or they miss days of work and then they get fired. So it really does impact their education, their livelihood, and their overall quality of life. I like to start when it comes to this topic with these false myths that exist around menstruation, both in India, in the United States, and all over the world, right? That we are crazy moody, that we are weak, that we are not allowed in the house, that we are not allowed to cook, that we cannot pray. And there are all of these stigmas that exist around periods that just really, I mean, it's funny for for this process that has literally given life to every human being on this planet, for us to feel very shameful about it is radically counterintuitive and counterproductive. So what we want to do is provide an opportunity to have them be educated on their period so that they have better health outcomes and better dignity outcomes, especially in India. What's happening is that they're using, uh, because they don't have access to menstrual pads or education or conversation, they're using rags or ash or leaves in order to manage their periods. What happens then is that there's bacterial infection. There's so many other things that can happen. It can, it can, it can hurt fertility long term. Can, it can create, you know, lots of different infections and discomfort. And, these are silly problems to have. These are problems that are solvable and, and, and that can really create long-term opportunity, health, education outcomes. So for us, this is like this foundational building block to help women have more dignified and better outcomes in life. And that's kind of where we got started. So I want, I want to f- say that it feels absurd that we'd be having these conversations in the United States. Uh, but I know that we are still having them, but just to actually help us see through a different lens for a second. Can you talk about the challenges that you face uh, reaching out to communities that maybe have a socioeconomic issues, perhaps patriarchal hierarchy and general geographic challenges that we don't really contemplate with an ethnocentric lens in the United States? Okay, I'm going to tell you a personal story. I think this will best help illustrate it. My family is fairly progressive as far as uh, as Indian families go, I think. And we live in a big city. We live in Bombay. My grandmother, you know, let some of her children go off to America. She, you know, and um, until her dying day, my grandmother was horrified that I would have the audacity to go to temple when I was bleeding. Mm. I mean, I would, you know, even when I was in my late thirties, I was still getting hour long lectures after coming back from temple um, on my period. And so that was like fundamentally like this guy idea that I'm not worthy of God's love while I'm bleeding to me was just, was just not right. And, and I, I did this even as a little girl, I would go despite having my period, even though I had no understanding of, of menstrual, of the, of the, of the, tra- of the tragedies of menstrual health, how, um, awareness and management, I, I really just had this belief that, you know, especially right now I need God's love. And so I would, I would go. Similarly, when I would go to the little bodega down in Bombay, right across the street from my grandma's house, uh, you would walk into the bodega. And this is in Bombay. This is the most progressive city in the country. I would look for the sanitary napkins because I wouldn't dare try to buy tampons in India. And there would be behind the counter, you know, like they were cigarettes or something. So you have to interact with a man. You have to say, oh, I want those things. The man would then kind of stand there and wait for you to wait for the other customers to leave. 
Then he would take the pads, put them in a black plastic bag, then in a brown paper bag, and then slide them across to you like you were making some sort of illicit drug purchase. Shameful transaction, yeah. And I can assure you that other South Asian women that are listening to this are, are, are furiously nodding their heads, uh, being like, oh, we've all had that experience. And so if you then tr- extrapolate that into a small village where people are more conservative and are, you know, part of the barrier is not that they don't know to use these products. It's that they just don't like the experience of getting them. And that's why we constructed our program the way we did. We have three different pillars. One is all about awareness, creating these women's circles where people feel comfortable talking about menstrual health together and answering questions. We have another circle where we are creating for producing retail quality pads at radically reduced prices produced by the women in the villages themselves, creating a whole other branch of conversation. And then our distribution team goes woman to woman in these villages and sells them door to door. So we're able to break so many different barriers to entry for women. So the psyche around menstrual health is that, you know, you can't, you you can't pray, you can't cook, you can't some in some villages be in the house um, in some sects in India, you aren't allowed to touch books while mm. you're on your period. I think I read somewhere that you actually take care to if it's a very conservative patriarchal tribe that you will go and take the time to speak to the men and try to break that barrier, knowing that they're not going to allow access to the women so that and that's. Again, that has to be part of this hardwiring that you have from going in a different approach. Like, I'm going to have to get some buy-in over here if I'm going to make, you know, or else once we leave, it's not going to happen anyway, right? Exactly. So that's got to be a different and very daunting, maybe intimidating process for some of the, uh, for some of your employees going out there into what could be, you know, a really tricky situation for them. Yeah, we, we've actually only had a couple villages that have been really strong to push back. But um, one of the ways that we approach all of our work, whether it's in menstrual health or not, is in a very holistic approach. So we have 25 programs across health and livelihood. Some of them are designed to scale and some of them are not designed to scale. I think that's really important is that not everything should be scaled. Um <laughs> We have some programs that are very small and specialized, and we have some programs that are massive. And what we do is we go into a village and we get buy-in from the elders initially, both male and female elders, and ask them, like, these are the different things that we're trying to bring to your community. What is it that you think you need? And how do we do that? And the buy-in is really important. The other aspect of the buy-in is we pick really public places for our production centers. So we don't put them kind of like in the back of a warehouse somewhere. We have like, they're right in the center of town. And what that does is that it also creates education for the young boys in the town. So suddenly they're like, oh yeah, they make pads there. And they are also breaking down the stigmas. Um, But to your point about the intimidation factor, it really depends on how you're presenting the information, right? We say to them, this is a health issue. And then they're able to understand and get on board with it. To the women, it's a livelihood issue and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a dignity issue and they understand it that way. And then when we bring those two things together, they are able to understand and see the benefits overall. Can you take us through the, the ways in which the foundation touches communities? Because it's not just uh, health issues. So I, so I want to be clear about that because it's, you've got computer classes and different types of training depending on where you meet women in their journey 
you seem to have now built on this foundation where you have something for everybody, depending on upon where they're at. Can you talk about how the breadth of the foundation's work has grown over time? Yeah, I love that. Thank you. The idea around holistic community development has always been, the way I like to think of it is like we're an a la carte menu of services and we work with the communities to pick and choose what they need. And I love that so many of our programs have come from the communities themselves. There are two, well, the candle making course and the beautician class um, as a, a, a vocal feminist was like, oh, are we really going to teach these women how to make how to put makeup on? Is that really the feminist choice here? And uh, I was so wrong because it turns out that this is a really flexible job. The women feel really comfortable doing it and they make a lot of money for working one or two days a month. And so I was like blown away by the women educating me and saying, this actually is a really good opportunity for us. And it brings us together and where we feel safe doing this job. So we have brought together 25 different programs, health camps, uh, vision camps, vocational training classes across a breadth of different vocations, entrepreneurial classes, computer classes. Our mission now is that we empower women and children through community programming to elevate health and livelihood. Livelihood for us is a very broad definition because for children, we want to make sure that they learn the skills to dream beyond their circumstances. So for us, that means science classes, English classes. You know, it's interesting. A lot of my friends that grew up in India grew up being able to read and write English, but weren't able to speak it. Now, I'm not saying that you have to learn English to be successful. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, we don't believe that at all. Um, But I'm just using that as an example of communication, right? Being able to communicate what you're trying to say. I have interviewed, you know, several graduate student candidates, like people that have graduated from graduate school that don't feel comfortable in an interview setting. So we thought to ourselves, we got to create more opportunities for public speaking. We got to create more opportunities for kids to feel loud and proud about their ideas, not repeating rote, memorized poetry or something. And so we have all sorts of summer camps and classes um, at the schools that we serve to to create that. We have tons of hygiene education programs because, of course, you know, health is fundamental. So all these programs, the way that we approach how we get into the villages is we identify what their first need is and we do one at a time and we continue to add these programs slowly because what we don't ever want to do is force a program down a community's throat. Mm. It also builds trust. It also helps us understand what the true needs of the community are, who are the true leaders of the community, who actually are the people that are really the doers and the movers and the shakers. And that way we can unfold these programs more successfully year over year. Ultimately, what we do is change hands and ownership. Uh, We have a great community that we have basically exited from in Gujarat, where we still get a report from them once a year. And and we still send them a little bit of money and like help them build. But they kind of do it all on their own. It's a miracle. That's amazing. All of these programs, they've assigned different leadership programs internally in the community and they're cycling through and educating women and educating children through all these different community programs. And so that's what success looks like for me. I want to close on the business of your business for mm-hmm. uh, for a few minutes if we can. So now there's running a business and then there's running a business during a pandemic and then there's running an international business during a pandemic. And how many more things do you need thrown at you to, you know, to challenge you? 
And it seems like events were actually uh, very much a part of your not just fundraising, but also outreach and education, the way that you you uh, scheduled and organized your events. So during a time when mass gatherings are complicated or even dangerous, how has it affected your ability to reach into these communities to raise awareness or raise money or just generally perform some of the badly needed services that you bring? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to answer that question in reverse, if that's okay. Over the last six months, we have been working tirelessly to ensure that the communities we serve have access to the things they need right now during a pandemic. It has been very difficult for us. And remember, we serve communities both in the U.S. and in, in India. And so right away, we realized that things were going to have to be different. And one of the things that I love about our community of, of people we serve and also our team is we just got together real quick and said, okay, what do we do really well that we need to keep doing? What do others do better than us that are necessary right now? And how do we make sure that we're communicating with our community so that they are taken care of? So immediately we realized that we need to distribute as many pads as we can for free, that we just got to do that. We got to make sure we did that both in the U.S. and in India, because if you can't afford food, you probably can't afford pads. So right away we did that. And we had a couple community partners here in the U.S. to help us do that. Food distribution is not a business that we are in um, at all, but we realized that it was an urgent need. And so we shifted some of the funds that we had allocated for a lot of the work that we were building and started to distribute food. Through collaborations and partnerships? Through collaborations and partnerships, both here in the U.S. and in India. Hmm. And then we thought to ourselves, masks are going to be a massive part of our, of our need and our, our success in preventing the spread of this disease. And I have about 10,000 seamstresses that I've trained. Oh, my gosh. So we called them. And we said, listen, if we bring you materials, will you sew at home in the safety of your own home? We have over 200 women making masks. We make 100,000 masks a month. And that's not counting. Those are the masks that we distribute for free. We also are making masks that we are uh, taking a fee for, for small corporations. So there's lots of local small factories. There's a small police force in in Gujarat that we made masks for. And these are two-ply masks, and they are being distributed to thousands and thousands and thousands of, of people all over Gujarat, uh, Maharashtra, and Rajasthan, which are the communities we serve. And it's been, I got to say, I, it, like, it moves me to tears how incredible my team is on the ground and so how agile they've been working in a complete and military-style lockdown in India, being so innovative and resourceful in the way that they are like solving problems. And I, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed uh, with, with our team, uh, both here in the U.S. and in India. In terms of getting our messaging out, I got to say, we, our heads were so stuffed in the sand for so long that because we were just getting the work done that we forgot that we had to bring our message out. I mean, and so now we've kind of remembered, oh, yeah, that's, we have to throw our events and, and fundraise because we've spent a lot of money this year. Uh, what we're trying to do is do a hybrid event. We know that people do not want to just watch another Zoom uh, meeting because they are Zoomed out after six months of, of Zoom meetings. So we're doing an hour-long program that's really fast and high-paced. It's called the Lotus Festival, which has been called for the last five years. What we're encouraging people to do is it's on October 3rd. So here in the Northeast, numbers have gotten better and people are starting to gather in their small quarantine crews of 10 or so. And what we're encouraging people to do is get dressed up. We know you haven't gone to a party in a while. Like get dressed up and gather in groups of 10 
order a, a, a level of sponsor pa- package and we'll send you food and drink. So you'll feel like you're at a gala and then join our party. And so for the first hour, it's going to be very high, fa- fast paced. We have lots of different speakers and videos and uh, we have the ha- half of the cast of Indian matchmaking us joining us because not everything has to be that serious. And uh, then we have uh, an hour long, amazing DJ set by the, the world renowned DJ Reka so that people can dance together. So you'll be in your small communities, but we'll all be connected virtually. And we're hoping that that connects to people in a fundraising way. But we understand that fundraising is just going to be challenging this year. I can say that our pandemic work has been getting some attention from some grants, uh, institutional funders, and that's been really wonderful. But fundraising is very difficult this year because a lot of, especially individuals, have chosen to spend their money on more kind of direct pandemic uh, work, which we totally get. So, you know, we're just trying to remind people that our work is immediate and also long-term. So the hygiene classes that we, we've been teaching for years and years have already saved lives. You know, we were talking to some community members about just how we taught hand-washing in, in classes and, and the use of soap and, and whatnot. And one of the little girls was like, I'm not going to get Corona because I wash my hands three times a day. And, you know, like it was just like cute. I was like, oh, okay, that's right. And she, and she was proud of that fact. So that was a slightly more long-winded answer that I think you were hoping no, for. But uh, we, we uh, you know, we're holding Lotus Festival on October 3rd. You can go to the DesaiFoundation.org and, and find more information. But we're also just trying to bring people together. I think that right now people feel really disconnected and we want to provide a moment of joy. You know, in the chorus I sing for, our slogan is, Joy is an act of resistance um, with the Resistance Revival Chorus. And boy, do I feel that way every single day. And so we wanted to bring people together for a moment of joy and optimism and hopefully have a little fun. Sage said to me before the show, like, I have to do a good job here today because somehow we have to muscle in on Diwali on the Hudson. Yes. Got to get in there. So it's our favorite event. It's so good. (laughs) I hope we did enough of a service to it that uh, that we can muscle in on that because it sounds like an amazing time. It is. It is. It's so much fun. Is there anything that uh, we did not cover that you want to uh, that you want to talk about before we we leave one another here? Yeah. So um, just one little nugget on 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 kind of overall impact. Right. I think that's not so much about me, but there are a lot of people out there that are are passionate about making a difference and that uh, there are companies that I, that really want to do good. This kind of goes back to my idea of dharma, right? It's, I really want to ask people to dig deep and to ask themselves, what are the values and the things that are important to you? What are the important things that are, are your values that are important to your company that are going to be evergreen and everlasting? And then lean hard into that impact. If the services that we provide don't speak to you, that's fine. There are dozens of other organizations out there that will speak to you you care about. And I think that just from a long-term giving strategy, from a long-term impact strategy, you're going to be most effective when you find those one, two, three pillars that you are really passionate about. And so... I love engaging in conversations with companies and people about finding that dharma from an impact perspective, because especially organizations like mine, we're small, right? Like we're still kind of learning to fundraise, if I'm being honest. And one of the things that we get really sidetracked by is we'll have someone come in, get really excited about the sexiness of a project, and then disappear and get really excited about some other sexy project. 
Now, don't get me wrong. We're grateful for the money. Thank you. But what I really want is to take people on long-term giving journeys. So as people are listening to this podcast, which, you know, I've listened to some of your episodes and I love the different types of journeys. And I think what you'll hear the theme and the, the companies that are most successful in their impact strategy are the ones that are consistent. Mm. And so it's just kind of a little nugget to everyone out there is, you know, if what we're doing speaks to you, come on in, lean in, we'll bring you along for the ride. We want you to be part of it. And we want to hear your ideas because Every one of we never, we really like to think of the people that that write us checks as investors. You know, we're investing in an outcome that you care about. I loved this conversation. I know that uh, I'm sure most everybody felt the same. You have a beautiful mind, uh, an incredible <laughs> spirit. You know, I'm I'm really honored that you took the time to to do the show. I can't thank you enough. So, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I appreciate you. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. If you have any suggestions for a guest on the show, feel free to email us at growforgood at moricreative.com. And if you enjoy the show, like us, rate us, review us, wherever you download podcasts. And for goodness sake, share the good message of the Desai Foundation. Thank you so much. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.